So we're starting this uh, series this week, uh, How Can I Keep From Singing? We're looking at a number of the powerful hymns of our Christian tradition, and it's kind of fitting we'd start with Amazing Grace. Um, Amazing Grace is kind of the all-time favorite hymn of Christendom, and I, and, and I mean seriously, if you do polls and you look at it since it was written in 1779, it will, it will pop up almost all the time as people's number one favorite hymn. Now, now, there's a couple of periods when that was different, and some of you will remember in the 1950s, How Great Thou Art, for a while, snuck in there as number one, and, and then it dropped, and Amazing Grace came back, and then in the 1980s, for a while, a Here I Am, Lord, snuck in for number one, and then it dropped back down, and Amazing Grace came back up. And if you think about it, Everybody and their dog has made a recording of Amazing Grace. I mean, every musician you can possibly think of has made a recording of Amazing Grace. It's in every genre, every kind of different style, everything you want to hear from contemporary to, you know, to pop, to, to folk, to country. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And if you ever go to a fireman's funeral, you will probably hear it played on the bagpipes uh, as they're, they're uh, escorting him to the grave. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's this powerful piece of music um, that, that speaks to people across all kinds of different age groups and demographics. Uh, it, it just, there's something about it that breaks through all of that. And so this morning, I kind of want to unpack a little bit of this hymn for you uh, and, and hopefully shine some light on why it speaks to us so powerfully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rain you've given us for this past couple of weeks, but this morning we are grateful for sunshine. And, uh, and we ask your light to shine in the midst of our minds and our hearts as we gather in worship. Uh, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, uh, so uh, Amazing Grace was written by, the musician people, you've got to be quiet for a minute. Amazing Grace was written by John Newton, right. This is this picture of our, our friend John. Uh, you'll notice the white hair, that's actually a wig. Uh, in, in the 1700s, this was a big deal in England, uh, the, the gentlemen of a certain standing uh, wore these wigs, and uh, uh, they were very popular. Now, now, an interesting tidbit with that is John Wesley thought it was an affectation, and so he refused to wear one. So anytime you see a painting of the Wesley brothers, the one with white hair is Charles because he's wearing the wig. The one with brown hair is John because he wouldn't wear them. So that's how you can always tell them apart if you've ever wondered when you see paintings. You can always tell them that way. But this is our friend John Newton. He was born in 1725. Uh, his father was a seafaring captain. Uh, and, and this was, uh, you know, people don't think about this very often. But, you know, I, I'm going to make a statement here. You can say, duh, if you want to. England is an island. Duh. Uh, but you got to remember in the 1700s, that meant that all their commerce went by, by ship. Uh, all their commerce had to go to any kind of foreign trade went by ship. So, so you know, the maritime tradition in England is very strong uh, and very robust. Uh, and uh, his dad was a, a captain of one of those ships. And uh, so when he was young, you know, his dad would frequently be gone for long periods of time. When he was six years old, his mother died. We don't know of, of what, but some kind of illness. Uh, leaving him uh, in the care of his father, who then uh, kind of alternated. He put him in boarding schools for a while, and then he would take them on board ship with him for a while. Now, I, I, I raced sailboats for many years in my younger uh, life and have been around a lot of this, so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I know what I'm speaking of here, and I'm including myself, but, you know, I'm just saying sailors can be a little rough around the edges. The language can be a little rough. And so, you know, John kind of grew up around that, and 
and, and actually, as he was growing up into it, you know, he kind of got in some bad habits uh, that some of his uh, other fellow sailors influenced him in. And, and, and then when he got to be, you know, in his early teens, for some reason, uh, he and his dad just didn't get along with each other. <laughs> Go figure, right? I mean, you know, how does that happen? Uh, anyway, it got to be bad enough that his father refused to have him on board ship because John would not take orders from his father, if you can imagine that. Uh, and, and so he began to ship out on other people's ships uh, and picked up really a lot of bad habits. Uh, he, he drank heavenly, he, uh, he womanized, uh, uh, frequently was out uh, through the night. Uh, he he kind of got in a lot of bad habits in that period of time in his life. And, uh, and, and so as he got older, uh, the decision was made that he needed to go in the Royal Navy in the hopes that that would straighten him out. So he was enlisted in the Royal Navy uh, and, and shipped out. Uh, unfortunately, he took his bad habits right along with him. Uh, and he and the captain of the ship he was serving on uh, rather rapidly came uh, into conflict with each other because he was drunk and or hungover or out all night and showing up late for things he was supposed to be or not doing what he was supposed to be doing on board ship when they were at sea. Uh, and, and it was a very uh, conflicted, cantankerous, uh, difficult relationship. Uh, so much so that the first chance he got, John jumped ship and, and he deserted. And the captain sent a crew out after him. Uh, they arrested him. Uh, they brought him back and flogged him in front of his ship, shipmates, and he was thrown in the brig. And while he was in the brig, he contemplated two things. One was taking his own life, and the other was taking the life of his captain. And, he, and that was not meant in jest. He was serious about that. In fact, he would write later on, he would say, uh, during that period of time, he would say, I was capable of anything. Now... One of the things that happens with these hymns that we're so familiar with, we hear them nice and warm and fuzzy and all that. We forget sometimes the the darker kind of side that's underneath them. Uh, And and this is a period of life uh, for John when he is really uh, in a very dark place. And we, we, you know, don't like to think of ourselves as being in that place, of being capable of those kinds of things. And yet you need to be aware, you know, one third of us at one time or another will consider suicide. Almost one half of us will consider homicide. You know, when I was growing up and people would get mad about people, things, they'd say, you know, I'm so mad at them, I could just wring their neck, right? <laughs> and I thought as a kid, you know, I thought, well, that's just an expression. No, no, not really. Not really. You know, when we get under the right circumstances, when we get pushed far enough and hard enough, we will do things that we normally would not do. And, and I have been in, at this point in my life, I've been in enough prison cells, jail cells, police stations, hospitals, mortuaries, homes. Uh, I can tell you that people do these things. Um, when they're pushed far enough, people do these things. And, and when we fool ourselves by saying, oh, no, I would never do that, right? I would, that would never be me. We let our defenses down. And I can't tell you how many people I have talked to in prisons who have said, I never thought I would do this, and then this happened, and, and I found myself in the middle of this. Uh, there, there is a need sometimes for us to remember that just like our friend John Newton, we are capable of anything. We are. We may not like it. God may restrain us from it, thankfully. But we are capable of anything. So Newton serves his time in the brig, 
He's released from that. The first opportunity he gets, he jumps ship again, uh, and he heads to Africa, to Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone at this time is kind of the hub of the Af African trade, uh, slave trade. Uh, the ships would come from England with goods. They would come to this area, uh, Western Africa, uh, and, and there they would trade those to uh, some of the African folks for tribesmen of other tribes that they had taken captive. They would then take those slaves across the Atlantic to uh, the Indies or up into the southern United States, trade for sugar cane, sugar, molasses, rum, cotton, those kinds of things. Uh, and then they would take that to the northeast of the United States where they would again trade those for other goods and then they would go back across to England. We sometimes want to make the trade limited to just one segment of that, but I want, you, I want you to hear how widespread that circle was. And I want you to hear that while we are very much aware in our country of the Atlantic slave trade, there was also one in the Indian Ocean, there was one in the Pacific Ocean, and people from Africa and India and Asia were all trafficked. It was a worldwide phenomenon. And we like to think now that that doesn't go on anymore, and we use a nice term to kind of dress it up. We talk about human trafficking, which is really nothing more than the modern slave trade. And it's just horrific. It's just as horrific and just as much a scourge as it was back then. Uh, one of the things we've done when we've in, in our area of Africa that we work in is that we have worked hard to get all of the children's births registered. Because if their birth is not registered, then when they're sold into slavery, there's no record of their existence and there's no way to follow them. It's the reality that we live with. It's the reality that Newton participated in. Uh, when he moved to Sierra Leone, he stepped into that. Uh, he began to uh, work for uh, another man there as the first mate on his slaving ship. And he witnessed firsthand the kind of horrors that went along with that. You know, people that were beaten, people that were starved, people that were denied water. Um, the slaves were treated as commercial goods, and so if one of them got sick, they simply threw them overboard because they weren't worth much. If the ship began to get in trouble and they needed to lighten the load, they would round up a group and throw them overboard. Uh, he lived into all of that fully. And, and in the midst of that, uh, he was mistreated himself by the people that he worked with. And looking back on that period of time, he would write in, in, in his memoirs, he would say, had you seen me go so pensive and solitary in the dead of night to wash my one shirt upon the rocks and afterward to put it on wet that it might dry on my back while I slept? Had you seen me so poor a figure that when a ship's boat came to the island, shame often constrained me to hide myself in the woods from the sight of strangers? Had you known my conduct, principles, and heart were still darker than my outward condition? How little would you have imagined that such a one was reserved to be so peculiar an instance of the providential care and exuberant goodness of God. I mean, it was just beyond his imagination that God would do something good with someone who had descended to such a level as he had. After he'd been there for a number of years, he finally was allowed to captain his own ship, made a couple of circuits as a captain, uh, on one of those trips out in 1748, uh, his ship encountered a, a storm at sea, uh, a, a violent storm at sea, and he was truly afraid that the ship was going to go down, and not only would everybody else drown, but even worse, he was going to drown. And, and for the first time in his life, he was driven to his knees in a desperate prayer to God to be rescued. Now, now, you know, we like to think that, you know, we, we have our world under kind of under control sometimes, you know, and 
when you look back on this period of time and people were on the ocean a lot, there's, there's a lot of these events. We're going to have one with the, the song next week. Uh, you know, John and Charles Wesley encountered those kinds of storms. I mean, you, you read these episodes written all through these folks' journals about encountering violent storms at seas and people that died, and it was, it was just you know, kind of prevalent through that time. And, and we nowadays tend to kind of think, oh, well, you know, we, we've got that under control and, and, you know, we don't have to be afraid, and the world is a much safer place and, until someone's plane goes down or until somebody's killed in a car wreck, until somebody has a stroke or a heart attack, until somebody flies build, planes into our buildings, until somebody mails pipe bombs to people, until somebody walks in a synagogue and shoots our friends. You know, the world is not as safe as we like to imagine it. And Newton in that moment was driven to understand that, you know, he really was out of control. His life was out of his control. And he fell to his knees and he prayed through the night. And as the morning began to come, uh, the wind died down, the sun came out, the sea settled down. And March 10th dawned a a glorious day. And, And he believed that God had answered his prayer. And so he would say, uh... That 10th of March is a day much remembered by me, and I've never suffered it to pass unnoticed since the year 1748. The Lord came from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. I mean, that sense of of being delivered, that that God had heard his prayer and answered him, and it drove him to reflect on a couple pieces of Scripture in particular. Uh, Romans 5, you know, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely than now that we've been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And then Paul again writing to the church in Ephesus. But God, who's rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. And that, those passages spoke to him because he thought, of, you know, as I was out there on the ship kneeling and praying to God, I was not deserving of God's mercy or God's grace or God's care. He knew there was nothing in his life up to that time that would have earned God's favor. He had lived a rough life. He was still drinking heavenly. He was still womanizing. He was involved in the slave trade. He knew there was nothing worthy in his life. And yet, he believed God had heard and answered his prayer. Now, you might think at that point, having had that experience in this kind of aha moment of God's grace, that everything in John's life would have changed. You'd be wrong. He actually made several more trips as the captain of a slave ship after that. Uh, And and when he was getting ready to make his third journey after that, uh, he became ill with what most people think is maybe something like a stroke that laid him up, and he was unable to go. 
In the meantime, he'd gotten married to a woman that he'd uh, known for many years and had uh, established a home in England. And so uh, he, he stayed home from that journey with his wife. Uh, and, and unlike now, you know, the, the stroke was, you know, months of recovery, not, not our short kinds of time frames we're used to. And so he had lots of time on his hands and lots of time to think and lots of time to pray. And during that time, he read Thomas Akempis' book, Imitation of Christ, which incidentally the Wesleys also read and were influenced by. Uh, he began to study in this. He actually began to correspond with uh, John Wesley, with George Whitfield, and with William Wilberforce during this time uh, and, and was in conversation with them. And, uh, and one morning, uh, they had urged him to think about the possibility of, of stepping into the pulpit and preaching. And, uh, and one day he read this passage. Um, From his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And, and he came to believe that he actually was called to preach the gospel. But even in the midst of that, he was still hearing uh, other voices that were also calling him to go to Parliament and to testify against the slave trade. Now, in Britain, you need to remember that, that the way that worked was that the slave trade was addressed first by Parliament, was outlawed by Parliament, and it would be quite a number of years later before slavery in and of itself would be outlawed. Newton knew too well the horrors of the slave trade, so he could speak directly to that. And so the folks that were working on that recruited him to come in and, and share that testimony. Uh, testimony with Parliament. And so he joined his voices together. And uh, you should know that, that he and, and Wesley and Whitfield and Wilberforce all spoke to Parliament about this. Um, of the four of them, Wilberforce was the only one that actually lived long enough to see slavery itself outlawed. Uh, Wesley and Newton and Whitfield saw the slave trade uh, outlawed, but slavery itself would not be outlawed until after their deaths. But as they were in these conversations and they're riding back and forth and they're talking to one another and sharing with it, Wesley would uh, say this to, uh, to John Newton. Uh, Whatever it costs, put a stop to its cry before it's too late. Instantly, at any price, were it the half of your goods, deliver thyself from blood guiltiness. Thy hands, thy bed, thy furniture, thy house, thy lands are at present stained with blood. Surely it's enough. Accumulate no more guilt. Still no, spill no more the blood of the innocent. Do not hire another to shed blood. Do not pay him for doing it. Whether you're a Christian or no, show yourself a man. Be not more savage than a lion or a bear. Give liberty to whom liberty is due. That is to every child of man, to every partaker of human nature. So Wesley had Newton read this to Parliament um, and share it with them. So he became part of that kind of testimony there. Uh, and as they continued to be a testimony uh, and, and a witness in Parliament and a force to work toward uh, the abolishment of the slave trade, uh, in that time Newton also was ordained uh, into the church and he began to preach at a church in Olney. Uh, now when he began to preach there, one of the things he found was that the hymns that they had seemed kind of uh, mundane, uh, he thought, and so he began to write some new hymns uh, and, and put them together. And, uh, and in 1779, as he was uh, getting ready to preach, he was meditating on this passage of Scripture out of Chronicles. Uh, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And even this was a small thing in your sight, O God. You've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. You regard me as someone of high rank, O Lord God. And, and, and as he thought about that, he thought about the fact that God had, in spite of who he was, rescued him from the storm and, and brought him out of that life into a new life and, and then given him the high honor of preaching the gospel. And he heard this as a prying to himself. 
and, and, he, and he thought, what, amazing, what an amazing act of grace that was on God's uh, part. And, and he began to write the hymn that we know as Amazing Grace. Now, now, originally, the original title of this hymn was Face, Review, and Expectation. Isn't that exciting? So, so at the end of 1779, a bunch of his hymns were gathered up and they were put into a, a book, a hymnal called the Oldie Hymnal. And, and, and as I did that, the editor went back to John and said, John, that title, no. You've got to come up with something better than face review and expectation. And so that's when it became Amazing Grace, as we know it. Uh, and it was published there in 1779. The original last verse of the hymn uh, when it was published was this. Let me see if I can bring it up here. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below shall be forever mine. That was the original fourth verse of the hymn, uh, and if you listen to Chris Tomlin's recording of that, you'll hear that at the end. I, I, up until I did this, I always assumed that, you know, well, maybe Chris just, you know, kind of made that up, but no, actually that's the original fourth verse. Uh, when this hymn was published in an American hymnal in 1859, a gentleman by the name of John Reese wrote what is now our last verse, uh, uh, the one about, you know, when we've been there 10,000 years. Uh, he wrote that and penned that, and it was substituted in place of this verse. And to this day, in an American hymnal, if you open an American hymnal, you'll, you'll find John Reese's last verse. If you go to England and open a British hymnal, you'll find this last verse, the one that Newton wrote, uh, uh, still uh, in use over there. That passage from Chronicles that inspired it, as well as this passage out of Deuteronomy, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. For this reason I lay this command upon you today. Uh, those two passages of Scripture are carved in the, uh, the stonework above the fireplace in John Newton's house. Uh, and uh, he had them placed there to remind himself of who he had been, and by the grace of God who he had become, so that he would never forget that. And uh, you can still go and, and visit and see those to this day. Uh, Newton continued to preach uh, for the rest of his life. Uh, he preached up to the ripe age of 82 years, uh, which was a long age in that day and age. I mean, that was quite elderly. And as he got older, uh, he began to have trouble with his memory. I know none of you have that problem, but he did. And, uh, and, it, and it got to the point that, you know, like he'd come up to preach sometime and he'd forget what he was doing. And somebody would have to say, you're doing this, Reverend, you're doing this. And, and, and then it got so bad that, you know, one Sunday as he came in, he, he, wasn't, he got kind of lost in the room. And one of the younger members of the congregation had to take his arm and escort him to the pulpit and help him up into the pulpit and then stand there with him and make sure he knew what he was doing as the service got on and then help him out of the pulpit. And, and, and as they walked out, another member of the congregation said, Reverend Newton, perhaps it's time for you to consider retiring. To which he responded, What? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak? My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. So he preached until he died in the church in St. Mary's in London. And he's buried in the, in the cemetery there. And on his tombstone is the epitaph that he wrote for himself. John Newton, clerk. Once an infidel and libertine, was by the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy, near 16 years and only in bucks and 28 years in this church. Um, you know, I'm convinced when, 
when I read through this, that, that part of the reason this hymn speaks to us is, is that whether we like to admit it or not, uh, we all know <laughs> the darkness that resides within us. Uh, I've done enough retreats and been in enough conversations, enough places where people are safe, that I've learned that, that, that if we're in a conversation where people feel safe and feel trusted, almost every one of us can say, you know, it, if folks knew this about me, they would not love me. Almost every one of us has that inside of us. Newton was honest enough to admit it and to bring that out and to share what that was about his life. And I think that's why this, this hymn is so powerful because it says, in spite of that, in spite of that, God did not give up on him. But God's love was poured out on him and God raised him up. And not only did God rescue him from that life, God even raised him up to the point of using him as an instrument of the gospel. And, and all of us, when we sing that hymn, hear that word of hope. Then in spite of who we know ourselves to be, in spite of the thoughts that have been in our heads and the feelings in our hearts, in spite of what we may actually have done in our lives, this hymn speaks to us and says, God has not given up on us, but God's love is still poured out on us. And God raises us up. And God can even raise us up to be instruments of the gospel itself. And this hymn reminds us that God doesn't give up on us. But God pours out on us unending love. God pours out on us amazing grace. Let's pray. Mighty God. You see within us, and you know, the, the darkness and the things that we would try to hide from the rest of the world. You know, the things we've thought, the things we've felt. You know, the things we've done that we would hide from the world. And yet, you don't turn your back on us. You don't give up on us. But in love, you continue to rescue us. You redeem us. You lift us up. You save us from the darkness into the light and into hope. Uh, you refashion us into the image of your Son. And, and you raise us up even to where we can be instruments of the gospel itself. So, Father, we, we give you thanks for this tremendous, unending love with which you fill our life with hope. We thank you for the gift of your amazing grace. Amen. <laughs>